Good morning, this is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Thanks so much for listening to the show that creates all kinds of uh, great inspirations for you as we celebrate uh, stories and, of course, the art of creating. And so I am ready to get our imaginations tuned, and I hope that you are as well. And I'm going to start off with a story. It's a printing story. It's about my office printer. This summer, my office printer has been very fussy. Sometimes it catches the paper and prints a page, but most of the time it just tells me there's an error and I must remove a paper jam or add paper to the feeder tray, when in reality there is no such paper jam and there is paper in the tray. The machine just doesn't want to play along. And so I sit and I get frustrated. And, you know, even one time earlier this summer, I did get it to sort of work, but I had to stand over it, maybe do a little dance, say a little prayer, and hand feed each piece of paper into the machine to get it to print. It took me almost an hour to get my notes from Art Zany Radio printed onto paper. So now it sits with the paper tray removed, and I want to bang a hammer on it. It never seems to work. And it's very frustrating. The printer is five years old. So... I like paper. I like holding my notes for the show and having a piece of paper in front of me to make notes as we chat. I like how I can view multiple pages at the same time. It's satisfying to me to arrange my pages so I can refer to names or event details easily during our conversation. I can't make these moves with a digital screen. I want to have paper. And I fear that we're kind of making this transition in the world of printing and we're being pushed into a digital world. And I like to edit on paper. I want to see the shapes of words and the length of sentences and paragraphs. I want to keep my original ideas in the same place as my edits. I don't want to have arrows and boxes of corrections from the track changes on my page. I want coded system, my coded system for editing a page. It feels right to me to take the words that I created on a screen, print them, and then process them. Sometimes I think about what it would be like if I only had a typewriter, or maybe I should go back to some other old ways. What would copying be like if all we had was a mimeograph machine? Do you remember those, those purple ink wonders? Printers have been an indispensable part of our human existence since the invention of the printing press. We owe so much to the printing press, and this changed our communities and the world of art making. So let's take a journey today to understand the world of printmaking and fine art printing. Today in the Art Zany Radio studio, I'm delighted to welcome renowned painter and chromist David Copson, and from Art Org Studios, Dave Mahachik, and artist and chromist Dan Woodward to discuss the fine art printing and the story of a 130-year-old French printing press. And you can get more details at artorg.com. And we've got a couple other uh, pieces of, of connections that we'll give to you during the show. But this is going to be a really wonderful, a wonderful show. So I'm going to turn up the mics and welcome all my guests to Artsany Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Paul. Hi, Paul. David, are you there? I am. Oh, wonderful. We can hear everybody. All uh, the technology worked, and that is the first victory of the day. Dave, let's start off and, and have people, it's been a while since you've been on, remind sure. everybody a little bit about your story and uh, a little bit about your studio world. Yeah, you bet. Um, well, Ardorg started uh, a bunch of years ago in uh, Northfield here, and uh, then we moved to Cannon Falls. But along the way, we um, have done uh, collaborative projects with groups of artists like we did the 20 views of dundas which was kind of fun and uh, we did some large four foot by eight foot steamroller printing with groups of latinos for a uh, day of the dead um we've done um like a governor's ball print along the way for the sesquicentennial in northfield a bunch of years ago and uh we've done sculptures we, we actually produced a sculpture with ray jacobson and mac gimsey and others um, so we've had a lot of fun along the way, and we moved to Cannon Falls, and we are building that studio up now with, with equipment and a gallery, and it actually has three apartments, too, for residencies. What year was that when you moved over there? I can't remember if it was, it was recent or far away. It was, like it, ten, it was like 10 years was ago. Was it that yeah. long ago? <laughs> but it was kind of an empty shell, so we had a lot, We still have work to do. We've made a lot of progress. <laughs> like, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. But uh, we're we're almost ready to emerge. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, along the way, we've 
we've done this educational event for kids where we go out with a little steamroller, a little garden tractor size steamroller. And uh, we figured it out. Um, we've printed for over 12,000 children over the years. And I have to um, tell you, my kids participated in that first one, and it's still a memory that, that they loved. Down, we were down at the co-op, and it was really yeah, just an yeah. amazing event. And it's, it's, so, it's a, a really great way to show what printing is and how it can be, and really in an, in an engaging way. Very inventive. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, we, we figured if you... If, they're 20-inch by 20-inch pieces of paper that we print on, and if you laid them end-to-end, um, you know, about two feet per print, that's 24,000 feet. That's over four miles if you we put them all in a row. That's, <laughs> that's a lot, lot of, of time on the, for that little steamroller. That's prints, yeah. But we also, so in, as far as public outreach in Cannes Falls, we took over the Sogan Valley Art Fair a few years ago. We're technically, we're still in Sogan Valley because it's defined by the Little Cannon River, which goes right past us. Mm-hmm. And um, so we did... Um, 46, 47, 48 was canceled because of COVID. Then we did 49 and 50 last year, and then this year will be uh, 51. Yeah, so. that, we've had some great celebrations on the show but with that and some great conversations. Yeah, so that's kind of a little introduction to Art Oregon, what we do. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. And, uh, folks, I'm glad that you got a chance to tell a little of the history because some, some folks might not might not remember all of that. And they can learn more at artorg.com. If they want to just click on some of the links that you have, that'll show some of those uh, projects and visuals. That if they want to take a look at that, sure. Yeah, let's um, introduce um, Dan. Tell us a little bit about your story and uh, your love of printmaking. How you ca- came to love it? Oh uh, well, I started um, in Las Vegas. Originally, I started at like a Minuteman Press, stripping negatives for uh, Hewlett Packard or. Uh, Heidelberg, I mean, and um, later on, uh, after moving to Las Vegas, I think I was still in the moving truck when um, I saw that there was a job opening at S2 Atelier, which was a um, fine art mm-hmm. lithograph printing company, and still in the still in the U-Haul, and Ray Mazza, you know, pretty much hired me on the spot, so I was pretty happy, and that, <laughs> you know, started just. Just started just uh, my job was at first just putting grays in between each sheet as they would come off and um, separating them so the colors didn't make impressions on the back. Um, but I, you know, standing there, I just couldn't wait to learn everything. I'd see somebody making plates, and like I couldn't wait to start making plates. I couldn't start. I couldn't wait to start using the cutter to cut the paper. You know, I mean, just everything. <laughs> just, just. Every piece of the process. Yeah, and then I would see people like uh, Jean-Pierre come in, and he would be separating colors. And David Copson, who we have on the line. Hi, David. Hello. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, watching them in their technique, and I slowly slowly started learning how to do that, too, and doing smaller projects, where, where, as the bigger projects were and doled out to, to David and Jean-Pierre, JP. So We're so lucky at our work to have... Uh, I guess been good enough that, that Dan relocated from Las Vegas to come to come here, and he's been on in this business, uh, the the intermediate business, but also back into the S two years. Uh, he's been on that press or around the press at least in the beginning years for for uh, 20, twenty years. years twenty yeah, years. That's but, a lot of experience. But and even that's... even farther back, uh, we have David Copson, who was who was there in the late seventies, I think, but also right. also has an interesting connection to Minnesota. Oh, let's hear your story, David. I'd love to learn. I've, I've read a little bit about you, but I'd love to hear in your words how you fell in love with printmaking and kind of some of those early days, which are kind of uh, have a, just an incredible history to, to share with us. So I'd love to hear the arc of your story. All right. Well, I uh, I started out as an art student and uh, learned uh, print, printmaking, and that was... Um, a hard thing for me to learn. Uh, so I, I wound up at the University of Minnesota there and studied with Zygmunt Freedy. And uh, at some point, he got me a job in New York uh, working at a print shop that needed uh, some help. So I moved there, and uh, I really got it, got into it. And before long, I was hired by Atelier Ettinger. They had just opened, and they were 
bring, they're the ones who brought the presses over from Europe, and they brought uh, printers and Chromis over, and we're working primarily for Norman Rockwell at the time. Uh, and I started there as a, as a proofer. I worked with the artists. Uh, and they were training Chromis to get to do as many Rockwells as they could because he was very advanced in it. And I realized that I was training those people, so I must know how to do that work. And uh, I started doing the Chromis work there. And before long, that, that's all I was doing. I worked there for uh, from 1978 or so to the uh, mid-90s. And uh, for 10 years or so, I ran the shop. And uh, I worked for hundreds of artists. And uh, in, in my role as a chromist, I, I coached the artists through um, making their own lithographs, taught them how to do it. Or sometimes uh, artists would just send in a transparency and I would draw a lithograph from that. Um, my job was to make uh, the uh, make the prints look as much like the original paintings of the, of the artist as I could. I served a lot of masters there. I had to please the artist, I had to please the uh, print shop, and I had to please the uh, publisher. And the publishers really wanted the art to, to look like the original painting so they could sell it. And that kind of went contrary to the grain of where artists just coming in and doing uh, uh, creative work and just do lithographs using the advantages of lithography. So in a way, I was making reproductions. And uh, I got very good at that, and I was very much in, de in demand. And the better I got, the, the more demand was that I uh, actually made it look more and more like the painting. So it became more and more expensive and more and more colors. Um, so uh, when the digital printing came in, kind of wiped out that, that business. Uh, but, and then uh, Eleanor sold the shop to Jack Solomon. Moved the, uh, he moved it off to Las Vegas. And he had a project where he was recreating old prints. And that was very rewarding work for me because those guys really knew what they were doing, and they could do a print in, in like eight colors, and they looked gorgeous. These were movie posters and advertisements and stuff, and we were recreating those, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and then I retired in like '94, uh, something like that. Yeah, and we'll get to talking about some of your your paintings, uh, which are uh, just absolutely stunning, and that story. But thank you for that that introduction. I think maybe maybe David can take us through. He sent me this little cheat sheet, which I just loved, of the types of prints and you know the difference between lithography and woodblock, which or in um, etching, which people might know those words, but maybe sure. they don't ha understand just the uh, way that those different methods transfer the image to the page. Well, I think everybody maybe back in school has done a, a linoleum block or a, a foam, they carve a foam, piece of foam or a wood block. And that's called, uh, you know, relief printing. You're printing the the high spots. And then everyone's heard of etchings and intaglio and uh, those types of things. Um, and those are actually printing the valleys. You you push ink into the valleys and wipe the top clean and you're printing actually the valleys but um lithography is different because everything's at the same level um and it relies on some a type of chemistry but also you know just the simple fact that water and and ink don't mix you wet the stone or the plate with water and then you where the image is drawn that that water doesn't stick and then you can roll your inking roller over it and it, only the image grabs the ink, and then that's how you print it. So that's what that's what we're doing here. This is all well, and then then there's silkscreen as well, but um, and everybody knows what that is. Um, but yeah, this is a specialty type of thing that was invented. I don't know, 1798 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And but it was really brought into the forefront by like Toulouse-Lautrec, you know, and in fact Toulouse-Lautrec probably printed his, some of his stuff on presses like this. May have even used one of these presses we have we're not sure that's exciting to think <laughs> yeah. about yeah it's and from that age so. it is 130 years old we think right 
And so this is uh, has a, a long history. And one of the, the things that uh, David mentioned was the um, idea of uh, chromist. And Dan, what, let's have you start, and then we'll have you jump in, uh, David. That okay. That's a job that people don't really know what that is. I think it's, it would be fascinating if you could help us understand your role in taking a painting and making it into a, a lithography. Sure. Uh, uh as a chromist, you, you take someone's original artwork and uh, and jump in any time, David, if, if I'm if I'm saying this <laughs> wrong. But uh, you would take you would look at their original artwork and then you start to break it down first in your head of how many colors there would be. You start counting the colors on there and basically how the colors would mix on there, including knockouts, which I learned from David. Um, um, just to keep everything nice and tight, you would knock out the white. The, the brightest whites and stuff like that and our mask and mask off certain areas. Um, but then you would, uh, you, you eventually you just start to look at everything backwards. You start to look at the lightest color to the darkest color. Whereas when you draw, usually uh, most people, they, they do the, the darkest lines and they kind of shade back. Um, and it, it's kind of affected the way I've been drawing too, where I, I would start to, I, do the lightest and then build up on top of that. Um, and that's the same way that you would do it as a chromis. You would, um, you think the lightest color first, and then you would start to think how everything would mix and layer on top of it. It's sort of, it's like layering on Photoshop. Okay. But it's, but it's kind of physically. like a puzzle It's that you're building. Is that a fair statement? Um, you could do it. In, yeah. Is that a fair statement? <laughs> David? It takes a, a certain that most people don't be able to analyze uh, what's going on in the piece. And it, it, it is different. David, I think I'm going to have you repeat that because you're breaking up a little bit and we can't quite hear. So try start over again. So, cause I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, oh, much better. <laughs> all right. The, um, if every piece guard, Different approach, and I thought I really capturing the artist's style and being able to draw that, and that that, that, that takes a lot of concentration, a lot of special skills. That I was very good at, uh, but I would work with all different ways. Somewhere like just draw the key, and I would make the color. As I said before. We're still getting some breakup. Um, I'm trying to figure out what we can do because I really want to hear your stories. Uh, Okay. Is that any better now? That is a little better. Let's try. um, You were talking about the different artists and the different ways that you would work with each of the artists. Right. Yeah. So let me just backtrack a little bit then. Uh, It would be very different for different artists. Some would draw the main black plate or key drawing, and I would do the color work. Some would uh, stand next to me as I did all the work. Others just wanted to approve the final, the final print, and I would work from their painting, or even sometimes I would just work from a, a transparency. Uh, so it was very different, and it would really uh, get, get into the different, different artists in different ways and have to do the work as they would do it. Mm. And so you really had to, you built a relationship then with the artist. And do you think that the piece that you were working on became a part of that, that sort of interconnectedness and each piece kind of had to be approached in a different way as well? Well, yeah. Uh, let me get, let me give you an example of, of one artist that I, that I worked with that, that may be known there and because uh, he, he's from, from Minneapolis. I worked with an artist, uh, Malcolm Lipke. Uh, he came into the shop. He wanted to do his own work. He did his first first piece. Everybody in the shop loved it. But the publisher didn't like it because it didn't like his painting. And the publisher could sell his paintings. So they wanted to be able to sell the print that looked like the paintings. So they hired me to do the drawings and produce the work that looked like uh, Malcolm's paintings. And I think Malcolm kind of resented that a little bit, that I could do the work 
to do his work, you know. Mm. So he was there and supervised me, and we worked together, and he learned the process. And after I did maybe a dozen prints, he started doing his own again, and they looked terrific. I mean, it's just, it was just unbelievably good, better than I was doing because they had his, his hand in it and his sensibilities in it a little bit more. So that's a very rewarding thing. I can imagine that's, um, you know, really a specialty skill to be able to think that way about a an image and be able to process things in that way. And I, I was thinking about how much there must be um, math used, at least, or, or spatial, your ability to see things in a spatially related, or as you said, on the color, brightness and darkness scale. Can you get us into your thought process a little bit about when you see a painting that you want to reproduce as a lithograph? How do you, um, can you, can you get into the inner workings of how your mind translates that? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried yeah. about that, but I think it's kind of a cool thing to to ponder. Uh, no, it takes a lot. Of, it takes analysis, looking at the piece, seeing how it's structured. As Dan alluded to, you kind of count the colors, but it's not like counting every color because when you print in lithography, the, the colors are transparent, and you layer them on top of each other. I mean, if you put if you put a blue plate down and a yellow plate down, you're going to get some green. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to uh, build all that into how you're, going to, how you're going to design the piece. And the green that you get might not be exactly the right green. <laughs> and then you have to decide whether that's close enough or do you need to make a, a special drawing just for green. It's, it's an amazing process. Uh, Dan, do you then, is every color, do you do a run with each color, or is it all done at the same time in one final print? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes you could do the, the um, you could do a shade lighter by just, um, by just, you know, delicately shading into a, a grayscale, so, so to speak, of, of that color of like magenta. Mm-hmm. But then uh, if you need to, to do just a little, I mean, a, like a couple of colors darker of the same magenta, you definitely need to draw it again in that that darker image, and then it'll fade. It, you get it to fade into each color, into each other, in which you would gradually get a grayscale. If, if I, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, yeah, that's what I'm kind of tr- well, trying to figure out. Dave, jump in. Yeah, let me jump in. Um, yeah, for example, uh, this S2 company, this Jack Solomon company, had a had a business deal with uh, American Film Institute to do the 100 you know best movies of all time as as, as it was of- in 1990 or whatever it was so for example um, we have some of that inventory but um, we're out of the the old uh, I think it's a Carl Lemle uh, movie The Mummy you know mm-hmm. one of his uh, horror old horror films and um, the mummy is sold out, so we've looked at that. I've looked at that one to try to see if we could we could redo it. And uh, instead of just um, you know a dot pattern and print it out on a printer, you know, mm-hmm. with a dot pattern, that's going to look pretty. Yeah, it's going to look okay, but if you put it up against the handmade uh, chromist uh, worked on lithography with solid colors that's going to have 12 or 14 different hand mixed colors in there so the resulting if you put them side by side the the handmade one is is absolutely amazing and the colors are so much richer so it probably looks like one the the dot one you're looking at is like if you need glasses and then the other one is like if the world is technicolor and you know like some sort of colors are so much richer and Mm -hmm. uh, you can actually physically put down a lot a lot more ink maybe a thousand times more of an ink film on your paper than you can in a in a a gicle which means i think that's the french word to spray so that's just yeah uh, um, you could also you know? like you could you could add like a really thick red on top of like say uh or next to say a yellow that you had just put on lightly and then it starts to build it starts to build texture onto the so it starts to look um is that you know, how you get dimension as far as yeah dimensions and it starts to look like 
an original piece of artwork. So it becomes a, like this limited edition original piece of artwork that you pull off the press. I'm so excited to learn this because I think I, you know, I've seen the prints, but I don't know that I've ever known the the you know what goes on to actually make that happen. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. I'm Paula Grandquist, and we are just thrilled today to be here with Dave Mahachek from Art Org and uh, our newest Cannon Falls resident, uh, Dan Woodward, who uh, moved with this printing press, and David Copson, an incredible artist and uh, renowned painter and, and chromist, who are talking about this 130-year-old French press. And when Dave you know, sent me a note saying, I have a story for you. <laughs> I thought I I need to to check into this, and um, you know it, this is just really every every angle of it is so fascinating, and uh, so I'm wondering, Dave, how did you like make a connection with this printer? Like, how did you know this is something you wanted to bring to Art Org? Well, we're always on the on the lookout for equipment because that's kind of my thing, equipment. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and Artwork has a long history of, of printing. In fact, you used to have a printing studio down below, uh, the, is it the yeah, Perman's, Perman? Perman's per- building, mm-hmm. yeah. And then in the Medical Arts building, we had our gallery there. And mm-hmm. so we've been around doing this stuff. But um, this opportunity kind of uh, just came up uh, in late summer this year, this uh, of 2022. And um, we learned of this, this shop in Las Vegas that was, was shutting down or wanted to shut down. They, they weren't sure, but... Um, we contacted the folks out there, um, Bill Barber and his son, William Barber. And, uh, we quickly went out there and, and looked at it and, and ended up doing, a uh, a deal with him to acquire all this stuff. So, uh, and the centerpiece of everything was this 130 some year old French Voirin printing press. Right. And, um, so that's really the centerpiece and, and the really, really unique resource for the area. It's um, one of only two such presses in the United States. Yeah, folks, and did I'm, you hear that? That's phenomenal. And I'm, I'm here to divulge and to announce uh, we're actually uh, traveling next week to Santa Fe and we're getting the second around press so we'll have both of the (laughs) so if anyone wants to print on that they're gonna have to (laughs) check with you to cannon falls (laughs) their their presses like like no other they're massive machines they they were designed to run on steam they got big flywheels on them you know pistons and uh, they're really amazing to watch yeah, I want to recommend people take a look. There's a you sent me a link which I have posted on our Art Zany Radio posting for this show to a YouTube. It's a David Lynch YouTube video called "Idem Paris." I hope I said that correctly, but it is like a mesmerizing short film about the operation of. Is it this particular or just an example of the style of printing? Yeah, it's it's that it's the type of press. All these Vorin presses are that do art printing. The lithography presses are all pretty similar in in the way they operate and everything. And there's there's going to be two here in Minnesota, and then there's one in Oaxaca, and then there's a bunch still over in Paris. But but likely less than twenty twenty such presses left in the world. I think, think it's it's, sure. it's impressive, <laughs> and the film I found it absolutely mesmerizing. So I want to encourage people to to go take a look at it. it. It's what I was captivated by were the sounds of the press and the way the film is shot. It's just it's black and white and it's kind of moody and um, it's just captivating. But I you know, I almost felt like I could smell all the inks and the um, different the machine and such. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, Dave, I wanted to, or David, I wanted to ask you is, does, does the, the machine have a personality? Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you have to coax that machine along. I mean, if something breaks on there, it has to be handmade. And, uh, yeah, you have to get to know the, to know the press. Yeah. I mean, and there, it's really a unique press. It, it, it was designed to print from stone. I mean, lithography is is writing on stone, and that's what is used. It began with real stones, limestones, that, and they would print on those. Then we switched to plate, and now we do it uh, photographically with 
transferring the images to the plate photographically, which I don't want to confuse anybody. We don't use uh, <laughs> photography. Everything's hand-drawn. It's just photochemicals. Yeah, that's another question I had, Dan. I was wondering about the inks that you use. Are there... Um, is is it special ink that you ha- is hard to get? Is it? Uh, it's just oil based ink. It's uh, and and the, whatever if you use like an oil pencil to draw on stone, or if you're using the emulsion, which is an oily emulsion on top of the plate. Um, and how the plates are made is basically they're light sensitive, so that um, when you draw on a clear mylar, you place it on top of the of the emulsion on the the aluminum plate. Everything that's exposed to the light softens so that when you develop it, it just wipes away. But everything that you drew, it stays underneath it, it's just, it stays as the hard emulsion that uh, still has an oily film to it that doesn't collect with the water. And so this process takes, uh, you know, days, weeks, months. I, I can't sure. imagine. All those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this press is kind of unique, this style of press, even being so old. It has an automatic kind of ink supply system to put ink down on the plate, and it also has an automatic dampening system. So, you know, part of this lithography process is the oil and water don't mix. You know, so you have yeah. to keep it uh, damp so that the, so that the ink doesn't stick where you don't want it to. Yeah, it's a balancing act too of oil and water. So yeah, so it's it's real interesting. But even even such an old press, this is probably the the fastest way to produce a direct lithograph today then i don't i don't think there's another press that could actually do that yeah so when you see the the film um it gives you that that you know they're they're printing off a series of pages that keep coming and um they're all very high quality and just uh really it's it's kind of astounding what happens it's pretty cool yeah and and i should mention too that the press was featured um in the show Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. I, I had a nephew who <laughs> so, loved that show, and right. that very press that you have is, is the one. The one from Santa Fe is the one that was, was, was depicted, show, yeah. that Mike Rowe uh, Okay, tried, and you also to... mentioned that there might have been a, a 1952 Moulin Rouge, just a, a glimpse of it in the movie? There's a really wonderful movie, um, 1952 with Jose Ferrer, um, playing Toulouse-Lautrec, uh, that really the biography of Toulouse-Lautrec. And it's, it's a cute movie. It's long. It's almost two hours long. But two seconds of it, they, they show a press. <laughs> we might, it might have been art. Might have so, to yeah. check with Dave to see when that shows up so you don't miss it. You can't blink. <laughs> but it's really interesting because, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec did these, you know, pretty archetypical kind of prints from that era, you know, the dancing figures in the, in the Moulin Rouge and stuff. And the movie's called Moulin Rouge. But um, mm-hmm. they actually take his prints and his caricatures from the prints and actually dress up the actors to be those those people. And uh, so they have prostheses for nose and chins and stuff. And so it's it's uh, <laughs> and and Toulouse Lautrec himself, he's um, you know Tim Conway had that character, you know the short guy who was the golfer you know, on the Carol Burnett show. On golf. Yeah, they did the same thing with Jose Ferrer. They they put little feet on his the ends of his knees and have him walking around. So it's kind of it's kind of weird. weird. But, um, it's fun. It's a it's really fun, and we're, we're so lucky to have you know touchstone all this history and kind of cool things. But right, um, exactly. And so there's all kinds of possibilities. I think it was um, you, you described a chromist as kind of the, a ghost writer might be to a book, a chromist yeah. might be mm-hmm. to, to a piece of artwork. Yeah, that's the artist behind the artist. Yeah, right. And, you know, I wanted to touch on what you said earlier about the the, the sounds of the press because it does get hit. You start to hear the rhythm of the press when you're on there and you're feeding paper in, and you um, it becomes hypnotizing almost where you're, you're, just, you're just on automatic as the press is, you know, um, and you have two other – you have another person down below and then you have your conductor who's putting the ink on. But uh, it, you guys all become in sync, you know. So it, it, you all become in sync, and uh, um, it's it's really uh, it feels almost bonding, you know, with the, your crew. Mm-hmm. Also, also the when you're looking at the the images, to touch back even further uh, th- with like a jeweler's loop, mm-hmm. and you were to look at the images, and you wouldn't see like a like he said, you wouldn't see a, the dot matrix or or 
any kind of uh, pixelation that you would see with the digital print. You would see just you know the brush strokes and the pencil marks that that the artists put on or the chromas put on there, you know. So I mean, it really is. Um, it really does feel, no matter what, like an original piece of artwork. Mm-hmm. David, as we're talking about all these stories, and you you've worked on this particular press, what are some of the stories that are bubbling up in your mind about the the history of of this printing press and? Uh, some of the things that you know you want us to know about this particular press. Well, you know, it's been twenty years since I worked on the press. <laughs> but you had a long history. Uh, yeah, like Dan, Dan was saying, it, it, there's there's a rhythm that that press takes three people to operate, um, and they do all have to be in sync, and it's. A, and it's it's really a team effort. Um, I wanted to say something else about the the, the the printing process because it's it's really a creative medium. There's no other medium like lithography. It's very flexible. It's 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 uh, you you can do so many different things with it, different approaches, and you can get any different kinds of looks with it. It's really great for original art. Artists can come in and do a drawing, do it something especially for lithograph, take advantage of all the different qualities of a lithograph, and make something that's really unique and, and, and terrific. The Chromis job was, was to make like reproductions. And these days, that, that part of the business has really been taken over by all the, di- the digital printing. Because when it, to do a lithograph with this press and this method is a tremendous investment of time and money. You'd have to do a proof first, uh, then get the artist to make approval, make corrections, go back, make another proof perhaps, and then run the addition. And you would run maybe 300 or so. Um, and then that would be it. So somebody has to pay for all that ahead of time. These days, they do a digital reproduction. They just need to make one. And then they can go out and sell that and print them all on demand. And they don't have to invest all that money. If they have a winner, they can print as many as they want. If they have a loser, they don't print it. So I've had worked for many artists that, that they were successful artists. They were selling their painting. They needed to get more uh, items to sell, so they would do the, the prints. Uh, and some of those editions are still sitting around. Um, Dan. Uh, Dave was saying how they picked up the inventory from this shop that they bought out, you know. Well, and so, that, does that, that make sense why uh, lithographs are numbered, right? That usually, or is that? that... Well, sure, there would be a limited edition. Right. Because uh, they would print 300. And then, and then, and then the, uh, for that kind of an edition where it's signed and numbered by the artist, then the plates would be destroyed so that nothing else could be printed from it. The reproductions that we did for the Ray Society and the movie posters that David was talking about, those are open edition. They have the the original drawings that I did. They can make more plates and print more. That is helpful to understand. Well, yeah, I mean, you can see... I mean, there's a reason, though, to to do it in the old style because the prints have a much richer... uh, colors and 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 the ink films can be much heavier and stuff so i think wouldn't you agree david that there's a quality difference the handmade lithograph oh, like yeah ab- absolutely i was just talking about the market right right the, the um those prints that that we did that were reproductions of those movie posters yeah those are gorgeous and the original artists who did those who knows who they were they're all anonymous people you know they would do uh, eight, ten, twelve drawings, 
and build up those images the way you, a lithograph is really supposed to be made. They weren't trying to reproduce a painting. They made original work. So when I got to redraw those, I would analyze how they did it. And it was just amazing. I learned so much. And that was late in my career. Hmm. It's, it's interesting because it also, what it does is it makes some of this old art much more accessible to people, too, at such a high level. I mean, you could go on uh, Amazon now and in this, the big uh, original first Toulouse-Lautrec print was the La Goliou one, the, basically the green one, and there's a, there's oh, a, right. a fellow dancing in the center and then, or in the foreground and then in black, and then there's a dancer out on the dance floor. Um, that one was uh, fairly large in size when it came out originally, and, and we have a version of, of that that mimics that size. So it's a three-sheet one. You have to print three sheets and then glue them together. And it's about seven or eight feet tall. It's it's really, Whoa. but it's really beautiful. But the thing is, is if you wanted to display a print like that in your house, I mean, you could get a one on Amazon and figure out exactly what in you know down to the, you know, the inch what size you wanted, and it would be here tomorrow, you know, printed on demand. But it would be pretty bad quality. Um, but and and then on the other end, to get an original, it's going to cost. Two hundred thousand dollars for that print, or something. They're really they're that expensive. Right. So what we're doing is we're printing it on the same presses that they might have originally been printed on. They're from that era, and we're using the old style, and we're using the skill of the chromas, such as Dan or David, to to really get in uh, the artist and printmaker's head from a hundred years ago to figure out. Okay, there's. I can see now they did this in six layers or seven layers, and here's the colors, and they're going to get pretty close. So if you put a, a really old one, you know, an original one next to one of these that that actually has a little s signature from, so when the Chromis does it, they put their little name in on there too. So we've seen David D. Copson many times in looking through this inventory, but there were also other folks too that, that did that same work, but... You're going to put those side by side, and you know which one would look more uh, authentic to the way that they were originally printed. Probably not the original that has degraded over time and had was probably printed on on you know regular paper or something. But now we're using the best papers, the best inks, and and with the skill, the handmade skill of the chromist, um, I I would almost think that the ones that come off of came up from this business were you know you could argue that they're they're nicer you know so I, that well I those, know. those original ones were just done as, as advertisements and, and posters and put up all over the city you know to, and these these are really works of art that's a big difference. And, and speaking of that, I, I know um, for folks that are interested in more about David's story, um, you've transitioned to painting, and folks can find some of your work on your Instagram's uh, website, which is at L-I-G-H-T-N, the l number 2-B-N. Light into being is the right. moniker that you can remember for that. How how did that feel to make the transition to painting and use some of those skills that you developed in an understanding of of the masterworks? Well, it's it's interesting. I'm I'm painting and I'm also making uh, prints. Mm. Um, they are digital. They're prints and they're on demand. You know, but I'm using all the skills that I learned. A printmaker, you know, uh, using Photoshop, you know, to make layers, manipulate each layer separately, building up an image, you know, and uh, so I'm doing a lot of that work, and that's that's exciting for me. Well, yeah, I want people to see what you're doing because it's really um, beautiful work that that uh, just has a lot of. Uh, that just the colors, the soul, the the expression—it's just really lovely. So I want people to see that and and check you out. So it, it's been uh, really exciting to learn this story. And uh, you know, I'm thinking, Dan, you moved here with essentially with this printing yeah, press, I was tethered to the presses. <laughs> I, came here. I was wondering how how did you transfer that from Vegas to here? What kind of special uh, you know measures did you need to take to make sure it made the trip? 
Oh, um, I, I left everything in David's hands as far as the um, getting the riggers and get putting everything on the, the truck correctly. Um, I was just concerned with uh, the smaller details. Okay. So, it, what, what, were, what, what were your precautions? Were you nervous about that, making that a cross-country trip? Well, initially, no, but we did have some damage in the, the big press. Uh, so we're uh, likely this one in that's coming from Santa Fe will be up and working before the, the one that we got uh, in the middle of the winter. So, uh, but we've got a plan to, to fix it and everything, get it up and running. So, yeah, I would think you have to have some of that mechanical knowledge in order to keep something that's 130 years old going and uh, really big too. I mean, the, the one that we got this winter was, uh, the crane operator, uh, that we hired to take it off the truck, uh, estimated that it was 19,000 pounds. So just for that one, yeah, that's about 10 tons, you know, so. And and you have a home for it now at Art Org. Yeah, it's, you bet. It's uh, it's there for people. How if someone wants to get in touch with you or, you know, has a fascination or wants to learn about printing, uh, what, what would they? Um, how would you suggest they reach out to you? Yeah, um, artorg.com dot com would be. Um, you know, we got the dot com a couple of years ago. It became available, so we're kind of proud to have that address. Pretty simple, um, but yeah, anybody. Uh, We'd love, we'd love to talk. So. Yeah, I think there's uh, you know, a small circle of people, right, who know how this operates and know about this. So this is the place that people are going to want to come. And I think once people start seeing those prints and understanding the difference, that that will make a, you know, a big uh, – people will, will understand what, what it is that you've got here. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Cannon Falls is a home to uh, in utero of – Nirvana recorded in utero in Cannon Falls. And, I was wondering where you were going with that. Yeah, and and uh, Robert De Niro talks about Cannon Falls and uh, bang the drum slowly. I think. So there are a few things. Cannon Falls is a pretty cool place. It is, in fact, and art. And or... We're right on this this little the little river, and um, so it's it's very uh, very nice little location. Absolutely. I'd love to ask um, both our, our guests today, um, Dan, maybe everybody, what was one project that you really are looking forward to doing or something that, you know, once you get settled, uh, you might want to you know, do some adventure? Let's start with you, Dan. And, and well, well, I would just I would love to start just printing again. It would be great just to get the presses running and uh, and and going. I mean, I've already um, I've already separated some colors of different things that uh I thought would look cool on there, so it'd be great to see those things come to fruition. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just happily biding my time. <laughs> <laughs> How about for you, uh, David? What's on your uh, in your studio right now, or what are some of the, the things that you're dreaming about doing? I'm dreaming about getting all these things set up and all the things wired up and hooked up and everything, and and then uh, and then taking a nap after I, <laughs> I really want to get these things up and running and then uh, that's my goal it sounds like a big project <laughs> yeah well when you're dealing with a 130 year old printer i can imagine how about for um david our phone guest um tell tell us a little bit about what you're dreaming about and what's in your studio and i'm making those uh those digital prints that i talked about um i'm out of the uh printmaking game that uh, David and Dan are getting involved in, and uh, happily so. I kind of burned myself out on that 25 years. Uh, I had some health issues, and, I, and the work required so much focus. I, I look at pieces I did now, and I don't even remember how I could have possibly done them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, right. I would imagine it is kind of a different mindset. And, and like you said, it takes a lot of focus. And it's teamwork, as Dan mentioned, the way that you have to operate the press. It's not just, you can't just grab folks and say, come help us. You all have to have, uh, you know, intricate knowledge of this process and and probably practice together like you would any other team. Right, yeah. And Absolutely. So do you uh, do you have other team members that are going to be able to do that? I don't know. I think it's just pull some people off the streets. And see <laughs> <laughs> well, I would imagine Kari Alberg will will be a part of that as well. Sure, sure. She's the real reason we did uh, all this stuff exists, really, because uh, she started out in illustration and she did some really wonderful 
uh, pieces for the 100th anniversary of La Boheme for the San Francisco Opera. Mm. Four wonderful images. And she was kind of riffing on Toulouse-Lautrec and riffing on Klimt and all these people. So, uh, And she was doing that by, by hand in a different way. She didn't have access to lithography or lithostones or anything, but but now she does. So it'll be fun to... That'll be one really fun thing to see. Oh, that would be great is doing stone lithography. I've never done stone lithography. So, so yeah, well, maybe that. someday Carrie will come in here and, Absolutely. and be a part of a conversation because I'd love to see what's, what's developing in her mind. She's a beautiful artist and uh, I'm so excited. This is a really fun project and everybody is just, uh, I just feel just so honored to have all of you here and to be able to share your story of this um, printing press and lithography. Um, thank you for for joining me, uh, David. I appreciate you and, and appreciate that you took time to be with us today on Arts Any Radio. Thank you for your, your expertise. Glad to participate. And to um, again, that was David Copson. I've got Dan Woodward here, who's new. So uh, hopefully you'll keep enjoying Minnesota, and Minnesota will be good to you. Yeah, you've well, had so. half a winter. Hopefully you'll make it through the first full winter. Yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> and uh, Dave, thanks for bringing this story to Arts Any Radio. Yeah, you bet. Thank I, you. I I just love uh, learning about all the things happening, and Art Org is right down the street. Just you know, Cannon Falls isn't that far away from Northfield, it's real so close, yeah. folks can make that trip. So, and we'll be back in the studio talking about Silicon Valley Art Fair. We are October yeah. that first week in October, yeah. so I can't wait to hear yeah, what you got. It's the seventh and eighth this year, the first weekend in October. So we'll go ahead and we're going to definitely talk about that. So, folks, this is Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. I thank you so much for being a part of the show. I hope you always remember to add some Art Zany to your life. And, of course, in the meantime, until next time, enjoy your imagination. You've been listening to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist. Art Zany is brought to you each week by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts in Faribault. Connect and experience art at the Northfield Arts Guild. Visit our galleries, arts festival, and take in a performance at our theater featuring a full season of dramas, comedies, and musicals. The Guild's gift shop showcases unique art from over 100 local and regional member artists. Come enjoy music from the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra or the 411 Concert Series. We invite you to explore your creativity in one of our classes. All are welcome at the Northfield Arts Guild. To learn how you can be a part, visit northfieldartsguild.org or call 507-645-8877. 95.1. The One.